when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. This week, I'm talking to Revathy Advaithi, CEO of Flex. Now, Flex isn't a household name, but it is definitely in your household. It's the third largest electronics manufacturing company in the world. It makes everything from hair dryers to the Mac Pro to autonomous driving systems for electric cars. We talked about all of that, and we also talked about the rise of automation and how to think about the future of the manufacturing workforce worldwide. There are going to be fewer people managing more robots as time goes on. And that means we'll have to train people differently and think about education and labor policy very differently. In fact, pay attention to how often this conversation comes back to incredibly complex global politics. A lot of times in the show, I talk to people who make software. They write code on their computers, they put it on the internet, and they're off and running. And yes, there are often important policy issues in the mix, but they are nothing compared to the issues of running a global manufacturing company at scale around the world. That said, some of the problems are the same. Regular Decoder listeners will know that we somehow always end up talking about content moderation, and I was surprised to hear that even Flex, a company that makes stuff, has to think hard about what customers they will and will not work with. This one is really fascinating. Revathy Advaithi, CEO of Flex. Here we go. Ravithi Advaithi, you're the CEO of Flex. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks, Nile. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I have a million questions for you. Talking to the CEO of a big global manufacturing company at this moment in world history, I think, is a, a great opportunity. So I just want to get started at the start. Flex is one of those companies that is kind of in all of our homes. I ran through my house today looking for things that were manufactured by Flex. And it's like a long list. But you don't have a huge public profile you're not a company that's out in front in sort of consumers' minds. So at the very beginning, tell us what Flex does and who your customers are. Okay, great. You know, when I took this uh, role with Flex, I remember my kids telling me, Mom, you go to all these companies nobody's ever heard about. You know, I worked at Eaton before and then Flex. <laughs> and they're like, why can't you go to like Coca-Cola or Apple or somewhere where we can get all these free products? 
And then I get to flex and then they're so excited because we make so many different things. We make everything from something as complex as a full autonomous electronics package for kind of the next generation of autonomous cars to hair straighteners and think of everything in the middle. So we are in the medical space, we're in the automotive space. We do a lot of industrial work like energy meters, inverters, things like that, power products. We make a lot for the cloud data center space, of course, consumer businesses, and uh, used to make a lot of things like cell phones, but that part of our business we have slowly reduced. But think about something, we probably make it. And that's how I like to explain it to people. Everything from vacuum cleaners, hair straighteners, coffee machines, to autonomous cars, to diabetes equipment, everything in the middle. One thing that is complicated to understand, and I think people don't see, we see consumer brands and they say, let's pick a hair straightener, for example. We've made a new hair straightener. It's got all these features and they do the marketing. I always assume, well, they must have a bunch of engineers and designers on staff at that brand that invented a new hair straightener. That is not always the case, right? What is the split between how much of that work happens at the hair straightener company and how much is happening at Flex that you're then selling and repackaging for various companies? I'd say each segment is somewhat different in the hair straightener example, right? Usually kind of the aesthetic parts of it, the parts that is, you know, kind of touch and feel by the consumer itself is usually dealt by the company that is taking it to the consumer itself. The behind the scenes in terms of the touch screens, how the electronics work, Bluetooth, wireless, any of those types of packaging design usually is done by customers like ours. So what we say is sometimes we purely make things, sometimes we join design many things with the customers, and sometimes we just say, okay, here's a set of array of components you can put into your product and redesign it. So yeah, a lot of companies won't make everything end-to-end because it doesn't make sense. You should only make what you're really good at and everything else somebody else should make who's doing it better, right? So so I'd say it, it just varies by segment in terms of who actually designs what part of a product. The reason I ask is one of sort of the sillier jokes in tech coverage is very recently the, the instinct to just put a Bluetooth chip or a Wi-Fi chip in something and call it smart and now I've got a smart air conditioner. We see so many companies doing this stuff. Every year I go to the Consumer Electronics Show and I see more and more things with chips in them. And I wonder, well, did the air conditioner company hire an engineering team or did they just run out and find a reference design and slap it on the air conditioner? Who in the end is responsible for it? Because you have to care for computers in a very real way. Where does Flex come in there? Do you say, well, we can just make your air conditioner smart? Do you say, we're going to do a ground up redesign of air conditioners that multiple companies can resell? Or is it, we're just going to wait and see where the market takes us? I'd say most of the time, what we try to do is have a platform design, right? I'll give you the, Mm -hmm. whether it's an air conditioner example, or I'll use one that we do a lot of work around is around audio, right? Like the things you're wearing on your head. We do a lot of kind of audio design work, which is base platform, which will do the wireless Bluetooth integration, which will 
keep up kind of with the next generation of those. Now there's a lot of work that's being done around hearing aids, right? Becoming more integrated with your TV, with your phone mm-hmm. and all of that. So we'll do base platform designs for audio that'll integrate all those basic things. And we'll provide that to most customers and we'll say, okay, we'll keep up with all the generations of those because they move every day. And you integrate that into your set of products or we'll integrate that for you into your headphone design, right? And most companies will do that. And frankly, you know, putting wireless or Bluetooth or, you know, doing that, integrating that into your design is really not that hard. But keeping up with the next set of chipsets, you know, how much more accurate is that integration? How is it picking up noise cancellation? What are the different ways that you're doing a sound recording, those kinds of things become more complex. So we will keep up with all generations of that. And a lot of customers will do the packaging elements of it, which they'll bring together. So particularly the example around slapping wireless and Bluetooth on everything is like the simplest thing to do, right? <laughs> so whether it's you know, your windows or the or your desk, everybody's slapping wireless and Bluetooth on it. We're more excited about things like who's working on the noise cancellation aspects of it, who's working on kind of the integration of everything around it that works seamlessly. We'll design all that, put it in a platform, give it to customers, we'll do some specifications for them that's unique to them. And then, you know, they'll probably embrace it and put it into their design. Well, the reason I ask is I'm really fascinated by the relationship between manufacturing innovation and consumer innovation. I can dream up all kinds of things, but you have to be able to manufacture it at scale. And that scale manufacturing is what changes the world, right? I I could have dreamed up the smartphone 20 years ago, and I probably did draw it in a notebook when I was 15 or something. But you had to figure out how to make it at scale and make it affordable, Where do you see the relationship between your investment into manufacturing innovation, how it enables the the products that we see? Do you spend more time thinking of, well, we're a huge medical devices company, we're going to innovate on the core capabilities of the medical device? Or do you spend more time saying, we have to innovate in our manufacturing capability so that we can actually build all of the things that we're inventing? We have to do both. Let me give you an example. Maybe that'll bring it to life. So for example, let's say... One thing that's kind of near and dear to our hearts is these kind of drug delivery things that you put on your skin these days that are either sensing something in your body or, you know, eventually maybe it's kind of even transferring some product into your body used a lot for things like diabetes, right? In an example like that, what we would say is, you know, do we have to work on that sensor capability on that particular product that goes on your skin? Do we have to work on the electronics or even, for example, the communication capability on that? Because it usually talks to your phone and says, hey, are you low on insulin? Should you be giving yourself a shot? We will be working on all those aspects of it with the customer to design that particular product. So that's one aspect of it. But These days, you know, it's so complicated in terms of the level of automation, the requirements around even something like sterilization of some of the sensors that go into your body. The sterilization process itself is so complicated, automated but complicated, that designing that manufacturing process is even more complex. Someday if you have time, you should go to one of our factories in Chicago, which is one of the most complicated drug delivery manufacturing setups that we have. 
And so designing that manufacturing is as important as designing the product itself, because it's quite critical to make the product with the least quality issues, keep redesigning it so you're lowering costs, or kind of new design changes that are coming in changes the manufacturing itself. So we have to be able to do both. And they're both quite different capabilities. So we have different teams that work on manufacturing processes itself and what we have to do to make that adaptable to the product and very specific product experts who are working on it with customers. One of the things about manufacturing, you mentioned Chicago, we just came out of the Trump administration. There was a huge push to bring manufacturing back into the United States. Even outside of the the Trump context, manufacturing is permanently tied up in politics and policy around the world. There are trade issues, there are employment issues, there are national security issues in, in some cases. Where does flex fit into that conversation? Because the focus is usually on big consumer companies like GM or Microsoft or something. But flex obviously plays a huge role in that. Where do you sit at the policy table? Yeah, so I'd say, Neil, I know you've written and spoken a lot about this topic. I've seen you with your Wisconsin videos a few times. (laughs) So I've definitely seen and heard you on this topic. We've been talking a lot, particularly to the new administration. And as the incoming new Commerce Secretary came in, we spent a couple hours with her, you know, in terms of really trying to take the noise out of manufacturing, right, in the country. It seems to be a hot topic, but it's also a very complicated topic. The reason that manufacturing left the United States is is for the simple reason that labor arbitrage was better in some other part of the world, right? But those things have changed pretty significantly because labor costs have gone up in other countries. Equipment, automation has played a significant role. So that kind of cost arbitrage is coming closer and closer together. Wait, when you say cost arbitrage, explain it for listeners, what specifically you mean. So if you think about making a product, right, there is the material cost. Where do you buy the electronics? Where do you buy the plastics that go around it? All the things that you buy to put a product together. And then you have to take it to some factory around the world, and it costs labor to put all that product together. So you buy the material, there is labor costs. And then, of course, testing and all that stuff, and eventually it becomes a product. If you take all those costs, one of the biggest components of costs in many products, particularly consumer products, was the labor side of it. That's why jobs moved to countries where there was cheaper labor. The labor was cheaper in China, for example. China or Southeast Asia or wherever, right? And those labor costs have gone up. As those economies have developed and costs have gone up, those labor costs have gone up. But also, the material costs have come down. Electronics costs have come down significantly. And the cost of putting these two together has come down because we have new equipment, a lot of automation, a lot of robots. So productivity is amazing. So that has also brought the total cost down. So you don't need 100 people to make something anymore. You could do it with five because you may have a fully automated machine. You may have a robot helping you, but you need highly qualified five people to do it, right? That starts to, again, bring the conversation back to, yeah, countries like the U.S. or Western Europe that has lost a lot of manufacturing jobs can play a role. But I think what we have to be realistic about, and this is the conversation we've been having, is what type of manufacturing really fits? 
mm-hmm. right, with the United States. So semiconductors, which is a lot in the news today, like making chips, which are complex, those definitely are a great fit. Large things that you can't transport around the world, like making cars, those are a good fit. Anything like medical, where it's complicated, where it has high automation, where you need very complicated processes and a high-skilled workforce, those are a great fit. So I think those are the things you have to focus on, right, in terms of bringing manufacturing jobs to the U.S. Sometimes people focus a lot on, hey, I'm going to build cell phones here or laptops together in the U.S. And you have to be realistic about, are those things really going to happen or not, right? Because those are still labor-intensive. And anything that is significantly labor-intensive, I think, and with not a high level of automation, will still struggle. But the beauty of what's happening in the United States today is skilled labor is getting better, and they're getting more skilled, like we can see in our factories in Chicago, Automation is unbelievable. You put those two together and we're seeing some very complex manufacturing processes return back to the U.S. Well, let me be painfully reductive and try to understand what you're saying there. And you're going to disagree with me, but I'm going to try. You're saying, well, we've automated so much that we don't need 50 low-skilled employees in China. We can get by with five highly paid managers of robots in the United States. Is that the right policy outcome? I mean, it, it's what's happening, but it's saying, oh, we solved our labor problem with automation. That seems like a very different class of problem. It is not as simple as that, right? Because it is not as though you're just solving that with bringing 100 jobs from somewhere in Asia to bringing five jobs to the U.S. There is a significant skills gap and education gap to also make that available, right? So the policy problem is, skilling workforce, which is a huge part of the issue, is are they getting trained? Coming out of high school, our apprentice programs are non-existent. How do you get people to train in technical education? So actually reskilling people for that is significant. If you think about the jobs I worked in as a factory supervisor in Shawnee, Oklahoma, or Hutchinson, Kansas, those were heavy machining, heavy manufacturing job, very manual, which required a whole different set of skills than programming your machine, right? Being able to troubleshoot it and then make sure the robot's working or make sure the program is working. So I think reskilling is a pretty significant issue that is important. So that's one big policy issue, Nile, that has to be top of mind. But the second one, obviously, is providing lower cost of capital. So we can't forget that. I know that's a complicated issue, but one of the big reasons why many Asian countries do well is that the cost of capital is much lower. So providing small businesses, medium businesses, cheaper cost of capital, so they can set up these businesses, put the automation in, skill their labor, all that is important. So it's not as simple as just saying, I can hire five people with the skills and then it's all going to be great. You mentioned cost of capital. What you're talking about is the rates at which companies can get money to build things. That is also government policy. It seems like We started out talking about manufacturing, and we are running into the policies of various governments have a direct impact on manufacturing. How much time do you spend on that kind of what's called industrial policy versus operating the actual manufacturing company that you run? Of course, my main job is to run our company and uh, keep our customers happy. But recently, I would say with administration changes and with the huge conversation in most countries about 
how do we bring supply chains back to our country? You know, what do we need to really do to train our workforce? What help do you need from capital standpoint? Recently, it's been a lot of conversations, right, with various governments in terms of what does it take? So I'd say it comes and goes, right? If it's the election cycle, a little bit more. If it's not, a little bit less. But being one of the world's largest manufacturing company, it's amazing. Manufacturing is always a hot button when it comes to jobs and the election cycle. So it always becomes a big topic about what can you really do to create manufacturing jobs. And then this whole thing around costs of shipping is so high, trade issues, now pandemic issues. You can't move product from A to B. Everybody wants to make stuff close to where they are. Even that's driving a lot more conversation around what policy do we have to have to make things closer to where we are. So recently, I'd say in the last kind of year and a half, a lot more than what we should typically do. Obviously, COVID is still ongoing. I think it is still the biggest story in the world. You have something like 50,000 employees in China the Chinese government was very aggressive in responding to COVID. I think that workforce and that supply chain just came back a lot faster than anyone anticipated. What, from your standpoint, made that possible there? If the question is on China specific, the Chinese government is just very strong in being able to implement policies, right, and make them stick. So, for example, this is always hard to envision, but you know, this happened at the peak of Chinese New Year, right, when the pandemic started. And so we suddenly thought, oh, we have 50,000 people coming back to work. What are we going to do with this? The Chinese government had policies in place about what was getting downloaded on people's phones. We were able to track every one of those 50,000 people and tell exactly where they were, when they were going to come back to work, if they should come back to work based on whether they were in a hot spot. So the control mechanisms were so significant you can't do that in every country, right? Think about doing that in India or in the U.S. Nobody's going to allow you to track anything. China is just good at managing large-scale, any kind of tracking management. That's a whole different thing than most countries can do. So I think that helped China a lot. It continues to help China a lot. They can implement lockdowns and shutdowns and enforce it like no other country. I mean, that edges into some dicey territory, right? China is able to enforce lockdowns. They're able to enforce and in some ways monitor their citizens in ways that the United States would certainly theoretically not allow. And then practically, we have seen absolutely not even be capable of even suggesting. As you work with the Chinese government, is that something that you, you think about? They veer towards autocracy more than democracy? Over the years, having lived and worked in India, in China, in Europe, in many states in the U.S., I would say we have to allow local governments to function the way they feel the best fit, you know, for their needs, right? So uh, do I have a point of view on democracy? Do I have a point of view on the parliamentary system or how elections are run? Absolutely, in almost every country I've lived at. But in terms of what works for that particular country, you have to allow the local processes to work. I'd say Chinese citizens are very proud of how well their country has done over the decades. I have many friends and colleagues there and very supportive of how policies are enforced in the country. So it works for people who are living there and who you know, are seeing the benefits of that over the last kind of two or three decades. Do my personal opinions match with all of them? I'd say, you know, maybe not, but that applies to almost every country I've lived in. So I'd say that we try to keep that separate from 
Are we creating jobs in those countries that we're in? Do we do that within the culture and values that fits me and which fits my company? Yeah, absolutely. I would characterize that answer as what I heard from leaders of large global companies for a long time. Frankly, that's like, yep, that's the globalization answer. We're going to do business around the world and we're going to believe in, in local governments. Maybe if we're really good, we're going to export American values by showing up and being good stewards and, I don't know, we're going to give everybody rock and roll records. That, like, that was the answer until about five years ago. And I think the Trump administration kind of blew up that answer. And his approach to China was very aggressive. That has led to, I think, just a broader rethink of globalization across the world, particularly leaders that do business in China. Do you think that that answer holds? Do you think that as the trade war is heated up, is that cost of moving goods, as tariffs have changed, as Brexit has happened, the stock globalization answer has gotten a little more tenuous, I think, for leaders of large global corporations. How has your view changed there? I'd say, Nilay, and it's not the stock globalization answer. I think you have to step back and say, what started the whole trade issue? And many administrations before the Trump administration was trying mm -hmm. to work on, which is the question of, is our IP safe? Are there the right measures in China for IP security? And what can we do to make sure that is well-managed? That's where the whole crux of the issue started, which all of us are highly supportive of. I have lived there, I worked there. I would say, yes, very, very important topic. And let's make sure that that happens well. But is it important? Do I believe in a free market economy? Do I believe that the world is served best by making things where you can find the most productive, most efficient system, and that way everybody benefits? I would say, yeah, absolutely right. Let's think about the semiconductor crisis for now. The easy answer would be, why don't you put you know, every fab job in the US if you want to make that work and uh, move it out from wherever it is in Southeast Asia today and try to make all the fabrication for chips in the US? I mean, the cost of that would be so prohibitive and would make the industry so uncompetitive that does it really make sense? You wouldn't even be able to do it. But on the other hand, do you want to invest in certain parts of it, like more assembly and test capacity or more memory making, which now doesn't sit as much in the U.S.? And then ramp up costs where it makes the most sense, right? And then maybe you spend $50 billion instead of $400 billion for building an end-to-end -end semiconductor industry. So I'd say, yeah, the traditional thesis of globalization when the world is flat was written may not be exactly the same. But the ideas and the philosophy of there is a free market economy, we should be using the best aspects of the free market economy because that provides the most efficient system for the world. I think that thesis still is true. We're going to take a break. But when we come back, we'll get into the global chip shortage and what goes into the decision to say no to a customer. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation 
Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health. And whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with Revathy Advaithi, CEO of Flex. I really want to ask you about the chip shortage, but this is a good time to ask a question that I, I ask almost every executive who comes on the show. You have a lot of decisions to make across a huge variety of disciplines. What is your decision-making process and how has it evolved? It's been two years since I've been in this role, but you know I've been in the C-suite for a while now. My process has always started with kind of what is the best for my colleagues? And that's where my process always starts. And sometimes what's best for my colleagues may not be the best for my customers, may not be the best for other stakeholders in the mix, but that's where it starts, right? And I'll give you an example of this is when Malaysia was going through a shutdown during the pandemic, we have a pretty large presence in Malaysia. We decided well before the government decided that we were going to shut down our Malaysian factories because we saw the pandemic actually rising pretty quickly. And we decided it was the best for our employees. We couldn't control it. And we said, let's just shut down, right? Everybody go home. We'll take a pause. And then the government has announced a shutdown right after that, maybe a week or so after that. My customers were calling me left, right, and center. They were like, hey, your competitors haven't shut down. Other people haven't shut down. Why are you doing this? And we said, well, it's the best thing. We can see this in our numbers. We can see what's happening in our communities. It doesn't make any sense. And that's part of our culture. We took tremendous heat for doing that from our customers. But after that, after three or four weeks, after we were able to bring back our employees safely, I got a call from one of the CEOs and he said, you know what? I know I called you and said it was a wrong decision, but now I'm calling you and telling you that it was the best decision you made. So I'd say that always comes first is, you know, what's the right thing to do, you know, for our employees and our colleagues. And when you have 165,000 employees, you have to think, you know, on a case by case basis, every country is different. And then, of course, our customers and our shareholders, I'd say my decision making process has never changed from that. Whether I was a shop floor supervisor in Shawnee, Oklahoma, or I was in Havant, England, or it was always like my colleagues around me, what, what happens first? Because I come to work because I like the people I work with, Nele. That's the most important thing. And we want to do what's right for our colleagues around us. And then I'd say there's been some level of thinking around which types of customers do you want to support? And we have backed out of certain customers that don't meet our purpose. 
So we've done that. So I think our decision making has changed around that. Give me an example of that. I, usually when I talk to like platform CEOs, we end up talking about content moderation. But backing out of manufacturing because you don't want to support a customer, I was not anticipating that to be a thread here. What kinds of things have you backed out of making? It's hard to give you examples because I can't name any of my customers, right? It's really <laughs> hard. But I'd give you a simple one, a very specific you know, defense customer where we were making very specific products that we felt like we shouldn't be involved in. So we exited that and we stopped quoting those types of products in the defense space, you know, in our industrial vertical. So that's an example of something that just didn't fit our purpose and what we thought we should have been involved in that we decided to back out of. Abstractly, take me through that decision. Did you get an email from someone saying, hey, we make this thing and we shouldn't? Was there a meeting? How does that work? Yeah, it works very, very elegantly. It works like this. One of my leaders who's working for me says, hey, listen, we have recast our vision, our mission. We're thinking about the kinds of products we should be in. We're quoting this particular product in this country. It's a customer we already make product for. What do you think we should do? So I'd say, hey, listen, does it fit with our new purpose? Where do we think we are, you know, as we have defined our new purpose and if the answer is no, I'd say, well, okay, so I guess that makes your decision for you. Then we have to talk about how do you elegantly manage that exit? How do you talk to the customer and do all of that behind the scene? But what's helpful the way we have done it is people can just read what we're saying about our culture and what we are trying to do and reach their own conclusions. So it doesn't take a lot of convincing to make that happen, but it takes some amount of work to manage the exits and things like that. Let's talk about this chip shortage. I have been very disciplined. It's like the main thing I've been wanting to talk to you about, but I wanted it to set the foundation. There is a chip shortage going on right now. It is having huge effects across every industry. Ford just announced it's going to cut production by 50% this quarter. Apple, which has been so far seemingly unaffected, the chip shortage will affect that company in the future. How is the shortage affecting Flex, and where do you think it's coming from? Oh, it's affecting us definitely, like everybody else, because everything we make has some form of a chip in it. Almost every business, automotive, medical to some extent, industrial, consumer, think of a business that affects all of them quite significantly. We're in the middle of this with customers, with suppliers, with foundries. I think it all begins for the simple reason that most companies are not great at giving forward-looking forecasts. The idea that everything has more electronics has been happening for a while. The idea that, you know, because of that, you should see chip content go up is understood. But nobody's good at forecasting these things, right? So automotive customers, if you take them as an example, cut down production last year in the peak of pandemic somewhere between 50 to 80%, right? So that happened like last year in, in like Q1, Q2, more in Q2. And then you think, okay, fine, business as usual should be coming back after that. Well, no, not only does it come back, but it comes back to a very significant ramp of plus 80%. And that didn't happen overnight. The fact that electric vehicles are more present and has more electronic content, the fact that you know, you're just going to see automakers need more chip content than they had before. Autonomous vehicles the same way should have been seen and it, you know, it, it should have been well predicted. But forecasting is a highly inaccurate model and nobody gets it right. Now, you combine that with the fact that consumer products were going through the roof in the pandemic. 
whether it's phones, whether it's iPads, whether it is everything you use in your home, they all have some kind of chip incorporated in it. So consumer products going through the roof, China getting concerned that they're not going to be able to buy enough chips. And so they're starting to stock up as the whole issue is going on with Chinese customers. So the combination of all of that meant as the return from pandemic and demand came up, there just wasn't enough in build foundry capacity to manage it. So there's the foundries, then there's the people who assemble, test and package and put it together. Everyone was running out of capacity. And so any little hiccup on top of that power goes out, you know, there's a fire or something like that makes it worse. And that's what has added up to this. Again, to be reductive, it's, it sounds like what you're saying is demand fell off a cliff for a minute. No one forecasted how much it would come back. And at the same time, foundry capacity supply did not increase. There's not like a, a shortage of raw materials or anything. It is literally the manufacturing capacity does not meet demand right now. The rare earths and all that goes into uh, chip production, there's still enough available, right? It mainly comes down to foundry capacity and then packaging capacity not being enough. Do you think that demand is going to stay high? Do you think it's going to come down? How do you think that that plays out? I think our view is that demand continues to stay strong just because everything is electronics in it. Everything's going to need chips in it. That is just going up significantly day by day. So the requirement for chips is just going to go up. So that demand's going to stay strong. But it takes a while for foundries to ramp up capacity. So that's going to take, you know, well into next year or maybe even further to get that type of capacity ramped up. And I think we're going to have to kind of wait and see how that plays out. One thing that has struck me about the entire chip shortage conversation is we keep talking about chips like they're a commodity. Like you can just get some computer chips and you're off and running. That is not true, right? I mean, there are many kinds of chips that do many kinds of things. They operate at many different process nodes, different sizes. Where is the most acute shortage, do you think? I'd say that today the shortage is mainly in what's used in the automotive industry because the automotive industry makes up like 8 to 10% of the chip usage in the world. It is not kept up the way consumer products have which have had many iterations and many changes. The automotive semiconductors have been pretty outdated. What a surprise. Yeah, so the equipment's outdated, the designs itself are outdated. And so that's where I would say the biggest bottleneck is today. And for that, not only do automakers have to redesign the things that they are doing and have to bring it more to current standard, but then foundries have to invest in equipment that is not transferable from what is being used for consumer products. So that means you have to go buy equipment, which is billions of dollars. You have to put it in place and ramp up production. So it's very, very specific to the automaker's needs. And I'll say that's probably the biggest gap today. And foundries have to decide whether they want to invest in that, whether that is where their strategy fits, which is also part of the equation, right? And we're talking about what, three or four foundries in the world of which two are the most critical? You mentioned at the top of the episode, you're investing in electric car production and in, in, in systems to run electric cars. Is that just a, an opportunity to do a, a paradigm shift in the technology that runs cars? I think about a company like Ford or GM. They need older technology that people aren't investing in to make pickup trucks. But you could also just design an electric car from scratch from new technology, design it to be iterated faster than any car maker has to date really thought, save Tesla. 
and basically create a new market and a new approach to cars. Is that how you see that opportunity? That's how we see the opportunity, but every car maker is doing it differently. There are some who are just building off of existing platforms and trying to make a variation of it, at least using kind of the base chassis and the, you know, that being similar across their platform. And then there are others who are kind of saying, hey, listen, I'm going to, you know, build it from scratch, like Porsche is a good example right there. So each car maker is doing it differently, but I'd say in some way, you have to play into that opportunity, whether you're going to do it from scratch or not, or whether you're going to take a current design and redesign it. In some way, you have to do it because, you know, it's just a basic expectation that we're going to use less of traditional forms of fuel. And there's no reason for us as cost points are coming down for electric vehicles that you don't incorporate it in some way. Well, this brings me back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is you're investing in the platforms, the core technologies of a car. You're not making a car, you're investing in something that's almost a car, right? You're going to design a bunch of stuff that could almost be a car, and then a car company could come to you and say, we want this platform to, to actually design and then build a consumer product on. Where do you see the stopping point? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the <laughs> first is I never see myself putting together like the body of a car and the seats yeah. of a car. And I've spent too much time on these industries to know that that's not a place <laughs> that we're good at or that we want to be in. So where do you see is, can, can you tie more electronic products together? So if you're making inverters, can you tie in chargers? You know, can you tie in that with your communication platform, for example? Today, if you think about the auto communication, wireless, Bluetooth, everything that sits in a in an automaker's you know central console, it's still pretty outdated in terms of how it's manufactured, right? So can we design all that? Can we put all the electronic platform together, which is inverter, converter, charging unit, a battery management system? Can we put the whole platform together? Yeah, absolutely. Will we do something in terms of the overall chassis design and all that? Probably not. So you'll stop at a point where you think you have the best opportunity. But in some day, can you see you doing something with battery design? Because it's kind of, if you're doing the battery management system, do you want to do something with battery design? Maybe. So I think that's kind of how we see it evolve. But then I don't see us doing many of the mechanical things. I think those will leave to the traditional people who are good at it. And we definitely don't see ourselves putting together the full car. The Biden administration has made chip production in the United States a, a huge part of its infrastructure package. There's a similar plan in the EU. You, you mentioned there's only three companies in the world that really do chips, two of which are the most important. The third is Intel, which is in the United States. Do you think that all of this investment will work on a timeline that actually affects the current shortage, or is that a decade away? I'd say what helps the current shortage is immediate foundry capability. You've heard those announcements come out from TSMC, from Global Foundries, from Intel, and those have to get ramped up over the next 12 to 24 months to help the current sh uh, chip shortage. And that's where I think we'll see some immediate effect. What the Biden administration is talking about is something more than that. They're talking about longer term. How do you bring a larger percent of the foundry capacity back into the United States? Also, how do you maybe bring back more memory production into the United States? Those kinds of things, I think, will take a longer amount of time because a lot of that capability sits in Southeast Asia. So I'd say what 
uh, the infrastructure package the Biden administration is talking about will help some in the short term, but it mainly helps in the longer term because bringing back memory production to the U.S. is going to take a lot of time and effort and building that capacity is not going to be easy. Assembly and packaging almost doesn't happen here at all, right? It all happens outside of the U.S. Bringing that back is going to take a significant amount of work. Training labor, which we don't have today for that kind of work, I think those will take a much longer time. So I would say there'll be some short-term help as Intel puts in additional capacity, but most of it I see it kind of through the next five to 10 years. The reason I keep asking about chips is it feels like you're a manufacturing company, everything has a chip in it now. Is that just the rate limiter for you right now? Like you need supply of chips to to grow and build more products? I'd say the other way to think about it is, yeah, if we didn't have enough chips, we wouldn't be able to you know, grow <laughs> fast enough. Right now, are we not able to keep up de- with demand because of chip shortage? Absolutely. The answer is yes. I think that applies for us and that applies for almost everybody else. So absolutely, we see it that way. There are some other limiters in the world. Uh, labor is one. Climate is another. There is just a big power shutdown in Texas and Austin. Samsung told us it lost a month of production, actually a chip factory there. Flex has facilities in Texas. Were you affected by the grid failure there? We were, but we were affected for a lot shorter time because, you know, our manufacturing doesn't work like kind of a foundry manufacturer, right? In a foundry, when you have an electrical shutdown of some kind and you don't have enough backup power to run critical parts of your foundry, bringing those back up takes a significant amount of time. And that's not how our production works. When we lose two or three days, we can start up again and almost pick up where we left off because we don't have those type of critical foundry manufacturing setup that Samsung has or other companies have. So that's why you heard most of the packaging people, right, NXPs, TIs, Samsungs of the world say they lost a lot of time with the weather issue because when they shut down, it's not as easy as starting back up. They have to go through a process one at a time. It takes almost a month to start your ramp back up uh, and very different for us. We lost time, but we were able to make up most of it. But we, you know, obviously were impacted by the shortages. We're going to take one more quick break, but when we return, I'll ask Ravaiti what the future looks like for Flex and what that might mean for manufacturing in the United States. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet, but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools, that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Revathy Advaithi. As we talk about where factories are located, how much do you think about things like grid resiliency and climate preparedness? Is that up there with skilled labor trade policy? I'd say we definitely think about it, particularly when we're thinking about building a new factory somewhere. We're thinking a lot about availability of power. Do we have to have our own power set up? Do we have to have solar installed or do we have to have some other alternate power installed? You know, what is the government support in terms of energy policy? Those all go into our consideration, particularly when we're doing a greenfield or a new site. And they're very important considerations because if we have large factories, they use a lot of energy. And if you have inconsistent and unreliable power, it's very, very hard to run factories like ours. And we don't want to be putting that much backup power. It plays a huge role for us in terms of decision making and how we think about where our future factories will go. You do have a lot of customers. Your customers are very sensitive We just saw a ransomware attack hit Quanta, which is one of your competitors. It also is manufacturing. If listeners don't know, the the hackers attacked the system. They leaked a bunch of Apple schematics, and they said they would leak more unless there was a ransom paid. That just seems like an entire other surface for you to worry about. Is that kind of attack increasing? Is it stable? Is it just this one happened to be very famous? Is that something that you have to spend a lot of time worrying about? We do worry about that a lot. We just did a long, uh, deep dive with our board on this topic, not just in terms of it being able to enter our factories or affect our customers' products, but the implications of that, right? So, for example, if it happened in a medical product, right, that would be pretty significant for us. And, of course, if it impacts large customers and it's in the news, then it's a PR issue. But in general, just the issue that it could affect our customers, it could affect consumers who are using our products, is of significant concern to us. We have an incredible IT team, right? We have such a complex system and everywhere in the world, but they are really good. Even when all the large attacks happened last year, we really had, you know, managed to minimize the effect of it. So I'm spending time on it. My teams are spending time on it. Our board is spending time on it. We definitely worry about this a lot. And I would say that we have, you know, really increased our focus and our investments in this space to make sure we're not affected or our customers are not affected. I read your Twitter. A couple of days ago, you tweeted, we need to act quickly to implement solutions that bring every aspect of the global economy to net zero carbon. You are a huge consumer of power. Are you thinking that, Flex will be net zero carbon, or are you just trying to buy power that's net zero carbon? I think we want ourselves to be net zero carbon. That's what our aspiration is. We've already committed to pretty significant reductions, you know, through the next decades coming on. We're installing a lot of our own power sources where we need to install as it becomes more reliable. We don't want to just be buying power that's net zero. If we can do it ourselves, I think that would be our ideal um, place to be. And I think most companies should think about it that way. But 
I would say it doesn't take away that if you can buy net zero, that's fine too. But if you can do it yourself, even better. The real thing is, can you commit to getting it done, right? Even for our teams, you know, when tech companies, I, I don't want to take away from software companies that are making these commitments of being net zero, but like you're not making anything at the end of the <laughs> day, right? So that's a whole different ballgame than when I commit to cutting emissions and being net zero, I'd really have to do it because I have 130 plus facilities that are using a lot of energy. And I have to do it with my supply base, which is even more significant. So it's a lot of work for us to make a commitment like that. Do you have a timeline? Yeah, we have given a kind of 50% reduction for 2030. We have actually worked through our ability to get that done. And that's our first major hurdle that we're going to overcome. I would compare that. You mentioned software companies. That's Microsoft's goal, for example, to be 100% net zero. And you're saying, well, they make bits and we make atoms, and that's just a different world? That's right. I have to ask you about Foxconn, because you brought it up. You mentioned it. You've seen our coverage of Foxconn. Foxconn is one of your big competitors. We spend a lot of time covering whatever it is they're doing in Wisconsin. They're Now they're intimating they might build cars there, so there's a lot of threads to pull on. One of the stories there is the huge tax incentive package from the state. As you think about locating factories, the political climate that you're in, do you think those incentive packages work? I'll give you my personal view, Nilay, because I've built enough factories in enough countries to know that they work to some extent if you need something as a gap filler. But will you make a decision to put a factory in a place just for the tax incentive, when you don't have a good supply base surrounding it, when you don't have the right labor or the skills available, the answer would be no. Does the tax incentive give some additional impetus to choose a place when all things being equal? Yeah, maybe yes. But there's no way that you can make a decision based on a tax incentive if you don't have the right supply base surrounding that place for the parts you need, you don't have the right skill sets then it doesn't work. So for me, the tax incentive always is the last point of the decision, all things being equal. And it's a very small portion of the decision. It really isn't the major reason why one would make a decision to locate a manufacturing factory anywhere in the world. One of the other stories with that facility beyond the taxes was that it was very political. Obviously, President Trump was there with a golden shovel. That's happened at one of your facilities too, right? Apple opened the reopened its Mac Pro facility in Austin. That's a facility run by Flex. Trump was there. Everyone just sort of let him have that moment. What was your reaction to that sort of optical political moment? Was it just, we're just going to let this happen? I'd say my reaction to almost any of these situations is that in our factories, Nile, we make what our customers are wanting us to make and what we have committed to make for them. So our factory is their factory. It's an extension of their manufacturing capacity. We are providing expertise, people, all of that. So if it benefits one of our customers and that's what they want to do, then we're here to support them, right? And that's how we see it. And it's not our role to say no to a customer unless it doesn't fit our values, unless it doesn't fit our philosophy, and typically, we don't do that. You know, we host a lot of government visitors in many of our factories across the world, either by ourselves or with our customers. And we feel like if it benefits them and it serves a purpose, we're happy to support it as long as it doesn't go against our purpose and our philosophy. That relationship to your customers is really interesting there in the context of, well, 
factories are like the ultimate political photo op, right? So your, your customers have some political viewpoints, you have some political viewpoints, then every politician wants to wear a hard hat and like ring a bell or whatever it is they do in factories. It just strikes me when you say you, you make things, that is a difficult job with lots of people involved. It's energy intensive. That is just a big swirl of complication. I think you've done a good job saying we want to stay out of politics, but here kind of at the end of this conversation, I'm, I'm wondering how much can you really stay out of politics? The way I say we stay out of politics is my personal politics is has nothing to do with, you know, what I do with my customers, what I do with my employees and how we run our organization. We understand that we have a role to play in politics in terms of taking a stand where we see that it's right for our company, for our employees. Do we take a stand there? Absolutely. But are there places where we don't have a a stand to take? Yeah, we don't. Like on trade, did we have a stand to take? We did. Did we take a stand on giving our employees a day off for voting? You know, it didn't meet certain political parties' criteria, but it didn't matter to us. We felt it was the right thing to do. We said, okay, you get time off to go vote. So I think we take a stand based on what we think is right for our organization and our customers. Does it play into the politics of individual, you know, governments? I think that's not important to us at all. You know, whether that plays out like today in India or in China or in Malaysia or in the U.S., I think we have to keep personal politics aside. We have to make sure we have great government relations. And then we mix that up with saying, what's the right thing to do? Voting time off is important. It's a right that we think personally is good for every employee to have. U.S. doesn't give it. We say we're going to we're going to support that and we make that happen. Doesn't matter if any political party doesn't like that agenda of ours. But that one was relatively safe. Trade is a little dicier, right? How do you split your maybe your personal politics from the trade policies that would benefit your colleagues and your shareholders and your company? You know, trade comes down to it's this is not something anybody has made up. It's started years and years and decades <laughs> of trade policy, competing with free markets, competing with tariffs. You know, we've all seen that in the last 30 years of our career, right? They come and go many, many, many times. Pandemic has changed it. Intellectual property security has changed it. Costs of logistics have changed it. If it is done for the primary purpose of politics, then I feel differently about it. If it's done very clearly because there is an agenda that helps a certain country, then I personally feel different about it, right? But at the end of the day, my big support is less trade and tariffs and open free market policy is good for the world. So the less I see of it, the better off it is, is my, my personal stand on this. Does it happen everywhere in the world? Absolutely. I want to end with a kind of an expansive question at Timelines. I do mostly talk to software company CEOs. Their timelines from decision to execution can be as short as minutes. Maybe it's more like a year sometimes, but it can be as short as minutes, right? The button was blue. Now it's going to be red. They push the change. It's red. Off we go. We're going to see if it worked. Your timelines with Adams seem much longer. How should people think about the decision-making timeline for you, a manufacturing CEO? Not as long as starting to make a chip in a foundry, which is years, but it is long. So if we are starting to ramp up a program, let's say in Austin or in Columbia or Memphis, by the time you buy the equipment, it'll take, let's say, 30, 40 weeks 
the equipment gets on, you know, comes, gets landed, gets qualified, you ramp up production. I'd say minimum, best case scenario of the stars lined up would be 12 months. In most cases, it would be somewhere in the 12 to 24 months, right? So when we make a decision, you have to first understand that demand is still going to be there 24 months down the line. <laughs> and then second is that, you know, in that 24 months, nothing changes in all the scenarios that you planned, right? Whether it is government or tariff or competency of the workforce or any of that. So we definitely have to make it in that time frame. So yeah, very different from, let me change the line in the software code and here I go. What do you think people should be looking for next from Flex? I'd say the most important thing, what we have talked a lot about is we're very excited about investing in businesses like health and automotive, particularly because there's so much happening in that space from a technology change that we think we can bring a unique perspective to. So we're most excited about that. And we want to participate in that. We want to be part of the change that's going on in EV. We want to be part of the change that's going on in autonomous. We love what's happening in the healthcare space, in the amount of work that's going on with our teams to, you know, rethink the healthcare space and help our customers do drug delivery better or things like that better. We're very excited about that. So that kind of technology that is changing the world in some way, either it's helping people or helping with climate change because you're using EV or autonomous, those are the things we're the most excited about. What you want to see from Flex is more and more and more investment and more and more conversations around that. It's just a personal passion, but it's also what I think we can be good at. Well, great. Ravithi, thank you so much for being on Dakota. This was great. No problem. Thanks, Nalei. Thank you again to Revathi Advaiti for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode is produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino, and edited by Kelly Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.